I understand that we have a, I would say, Huel adjacent. It's definitely something he would enjoy learning and talking about, I think. I think you so. Know, I think Huel likes going into the desert and examining the cactuses and things like that. So he's he's very interested in learning about farming. I just watched an episode where he went to a camel dairy operation. Yeah, um, that one was which, wild. It was pretty wild. It was wild and woolly. It was very good. Um, and so <laughs> hopefully I can channel a little bit of Huel in this episode because the goal of what I, what I want to do is I want to talk about a topic that's like uh, near and dear to my heart. It's, it's called permaculture. Mm. Now, this is sort of like a, if you're into like all of those various food documentaries that that Netflix and Amazon Prime seem to pump out on the regular, oh, okay, you know yeah. that they teach you like, oh, well, now you should juice everything, or now you, uh, mm. why you should be a vegan, or you know all the just various food, why right. you need to eat raw, why yeah. uh, why you should subsist on uh, a diet well, solely of nuts and seaweed. You know, I watch Super Size Me, and now I only eat fast food burgers. <laughs> Right. That's what it was about, right? Yeah. I mean, that's um, what I took away from it. <laughs> so, so you probably heard about permaculture, at le- or at least heard the name dropped, but I'm going to explain it, and I want to try to show how it can apply to parts of our life other than just agriculture, how it can apply to our whole society, our whole world. Mm. Um and I also want to do that. I want to try to avoid jargon. I, I I don't want to present this as if I am some sort of subject matter expert. I'm just an amateur. <laughs> I, do, <laughs> I want to come at it from a Huel perspective. I, cause, because like right. jargon can be alienating when also, also I'm a dummy. Okay. So I'm, I'm just coming at this with childlike wonder. So like mm-hmm. what is permaculture? Um, the thing is that it's very hard to define. So as an idea, it's kind of sprawling and all encompassing, but it can be difficult to like easily define because it's it's almost like a whole ideology or a whole it's like a culture. It's like a it's like a whole system. A, a permanent so, culture. A permanent culture. <laughs> um and the <laughs> the thing is it's like it's not sectarian. Um mm. so like you're just as likely to find permaculture being practiced by like anarchists or free market chuds. Hmm. Um, if hmm. you do a YouTube search for like perma- permaculture, you're going to find like varying, varying backgrounds and political ideologies and cultural and social backgrounds for the people practicing it and talking about it. And sometimes that bleeds into what they perceive permaculture to be. Um, hmm. So I don't want people to be put off by that because you may have had a run in with that and seen like, oh, this is for like libertarian uh, preppers. And <laughs> it's not. <laughs> <laughs> they. They recognize, you know, the value in it, um, but mm. there's there's all kinds of people using it. Um, there are some prominent and foundational figures that will come up a lot, but there's no like czar of permaculture. There's not like a codified de- uh, creed there's not there's not any sort of like permaculture king or the like originating prophet of there's no like joseph smith or muhammad of permaculture right um 
so that can make it a little difficult. Um, so there's like some how founders. Are we, how are we supposed to believe in anything if there's not some sort of figurehead leader? Yeah, I think I think actually what that and we'll kind of get into this is that kind of like turns out to be a positive aspect of it because like uh what i put here in the notes is it like accretes concepts and practices like a katamari domacy mm. of like thought and so anything that's applicable will start to find its way into this system um but uphold katamari domacy thought yeah <laughs> <laughs> but it Maybe one of the best ways to dis- to describe kind of what it is is to talk about its origins. So, where did it come from? Why was it created? It was started in Tasmania in 1978. the The term permaculture was coined by David Holmgren, who was a uh, graduate student at the Tasmanian College of Advanced Education's Department of Environmental Design, and also Bill Mollison, who was a senior lecturer in environmental psychology at the University of Tasmania. Um, Great name. At, Hol- yeah. Holmgren. Holm- David Holmgren. David Holmgren. Yeah. These, these guys are quite, quite characters. You can look them up on YouTube, see some videos and lectures and things they've done. Mm. Um, they're, they're Australians. I mean, well, they're like Tasmanians. Like my understanding about Tasmania is it's like the Alabama of Australia. Um, mm. Correct me if I'm wrong. Any of our listeners, I'm sure they will. Um, but during during that time, just like most of the world in the 1970s and particularly the late 1970s, we were the world was beginning to see the breaking points of our neoliberal economic system. Right. Mm-hmm. We were beginning mm-hmm. to see that like unlimited consumption and unlimited growth really is a fantasy that. <laughs> Am I right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, we 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 kind of talked about these kind of things in relation to other stuff. I remember this idea came up uh during the Berlin Wall episode for instance, mm-hmm. and it came up during High Speed Rail. We have these this this period of great abundance, this post-war great abundance, right? Mm-hmm. Um fueled all this growth and this infrastructure that sort of like was built on cheap energy. Uh, and that all kind of started to come to a head in 1978. But in Australia, at the same time, in the late 70s and early 80s, there was like a huge catastrophic drought. Ooh. Now, Australia at that time, a huge part of its economy was agriculture, specifically um, cattle, yeah. uh, beef and dairy and uh, sheep and things like that. Um. And when you don't have rain, you don't have grass. Right. <laughs> you don't have things for the animals to eat. Yeah. So that becomes a problem. And and when you have land that's been degraded by overgrazing because it's hard to find and animals are hungry and they're when they're more thirsty, they eat more. You know, it's kind of like this perpetual cycle that it like desertifies the land that leads to uh fire it leads to erosion it leads to all kinds of problems so uh, fortunately really- wildfires would never plague australia ever again after this <laughs> they yeah they they figured it out it never happened again yeah so this is kind of australia like- famously wildfire free <laughs> <laughs> yeah since 1983 so like the <laughs> these sort of like natural wildfire and rainstorm 
systems that Australia kind of has, once the ecosystem was reached this like damage point of overconsumption, it just kicked into overdrive to where there wouldn't be any rain and then there would be this giant storm. None of the water would soak into the ground, right? It would all just right. wash yeah. off into the sea and washing off any remaining little nutrients from the topsoil off to where now you're just left with like saltified sand that couldn't grow anything. And so that process, <laughs> it, you know, it's, it's, it, it's a big deal. And so they started looking like, what are alternative forms of agriculture that, that we can look at? So mm -hmm. though it did sort of start as an agricultural issue, you'll see that it like quickly branched out into more than agriculture. You, um, now you mean to tell me that agricultural colonialism of just trying to plant the same thing everywhere all over the world was a bad idea. Yeah. Turns out. <laughs> and we'll find out some, we'll talk a little bit more later about some specific examples of that. It, it turns the, out just because you can plant tomatoes in the middle of the desert doesn't mean that you necessarily it should. Might, it might not be the best idea. So what, what Bill Mollison and David Holmgren came up with was this, this idea of permaculture and it starts from three ethics, mm. which, which I mean, you could really do like a whole episode on this. Any, any good ideological system has a list, a numerical and ordered list of principles. <laughs> yeah. But the, but the thing is like without ethics driving it, you're going to run into problems. And so it's that's just a, it's just a white paper. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and the ethics guide the principles, right? Everything stems from these ethics. And I remember the first time I heard about these ethics, I, I was just, I stood up out of my chair and I put my hands on my head and I was like, Holy cow. Like this encompasses the way I think about the world. And I've never heard it put in such a condensed form, but the three ethics are first, um, they they generally go earth care, people care, and then the last one people call fair share. Um, so earth care means a provision for all systems to continue and multiply. We take care of the earth. Mm -hmm. People care is provision for people to access those resources necessary for their existence. Fair share or setting, this is originally it was called setting limits to population and consumption. Which, you know, that's 70s brain, right? They're, they're all oh, in the yeah. population. Right. Um, but in, in time, they just started to call it fair share, which means by governing our own needs, we can set resources aside to further the above principles. Meaning that when you have an excess of resources, you fairly share and distribute those resources. Mm. And so... When, I, when you put all those things together, it's a pretty great recipe for, for a guiding ethos uh, mm -hmm. for your, your system of design. And when, when they talk about permaculture, we, we often call it a system of design. Um, and when I like to think about it from like a Star Trek perspective, it's like terraforming, right? Mm. It's like if you were given a rock in the middle of space and your job was to turn that into a habitable earth for for humanoid population what would you do and so that to that extent it's a design the principles of of permaculture there are 12 of them the first one is observe and interact by taking time to engage with nature we can design solutions that suit our particular situation so mm -hmm. instead of trying to impose 
what you already think you know about the, now, the problem. <laughs> in our last episode, we learned that environmental reviews are apparently bad. So, right, yeah, they hold up everything. Right, there's no consequences from forgoing them. Yeah, hmm. yeah, interesting. <laughs> Just thought and, I would put that thought in people's heads. Yeah, no, it, 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 <laughs> it's funny because when you talk about these permacultural principles and ethics, you see how they apply to like a myriad of things, and that's what's so cool about it to me. The, the second principle is catch and store energy. By developing mm. systems that collect resources at peak abundance, we can use them in times of need. So, now, my thought here is that there is a chance here for some slight overlap with the free energy suppression people, but maybe <laughs> I'm wrong about that. I don't know. <laughs> you, yeah. So number three is obtain a yield. Ensure that you're getting truly useful rewards as part of the work that you're doing. Number three is crucial because you look at a lot of well-meaning um, people who care about ecology, they care about the environment, but they sort of miss this number three because they, they want an environment for an environment, a pristine environment for pristine environment's sake, right? And their answer is like, ultimately, if we just rid the world of all human, human beings, everything would be fine. Yeah. Well, maybe it would be fine, except for the people. Uh, right, yeah. <laughs> so, so, like, if your system does not ensure that you're actually obtaining a yield that can sustain the system and can sustain people who are stewarding it, uh, it's, it's not going to work. Mm -hmm. Number mm -hmm. four is apply self-regulation and accept feedback. Mm -hmm. So that means we need to discourage inappropriate activity to ensure that systems can continue to function well. Um, if, if properly designed, any system should be able to self-regulate and should be able to take feedback and improvement, mm -hmm. um, which is a, that's a big deal. Uh, number five is use and value renewable resources and services. Mm. So make the best use of nature's abundance to reduce our consumptive behavior and dependence on non-renewable resources. So right now, our, basically our whole economy and our whole world is powered by non-renewable resources. Yeah. And we see where that's getting us. That's, <laughs> you can, we can see the like, end of the road up ahead. We can see that yellow end sign up uh -huh. there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Free, freeway ends. <laughs> Two miles. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, six, produce no waste. Oh. By valuing and making use of all resources that are available available to us, nothing goes to waste. And I think you'll see in some of these systems that we'll talk about later, like some of the actual applications of it, how how true that is and how cool it is once you see it. Because it sounds like that's not possible, right? Produce mm -hmm. no waste. Like, I can't imagine that. Um, but it is possible. Um, number seven, design from patterns to details. So you step back, you observe patterns in nature and society, and these form the backbone of the designs with the details filled in as we go. Um, and a lot of times designs start from details in society. They start, they start from like a template or point trying to put things in place, trying to impose what we think rather than starting from like basic principles and patterns. Um, and often that that results in human beings creating things that are contrary to the laws of nature, <laughs> that are contrary 
to the patterns of nature. Um, and there's this, I mean, this is kind of a tangent from here, but I think another thing that's important to remember is that um, in our Western culture, we think of people as separate from nature. Mm-hmm. But right. we're not. We are yeah, part you, of nature. Like, I go, I go into nature on the weekends when I drive to a park. Right, but nature is all around. You are part of the world. Mm. <laughs> and well, now that's and, a little terrifying. And well, <laughs> it's important, <laughs> and it's important to remember that because it, it's important to remember that everything you do has to do with nature. You, you can't just simply like step out of it and be like, okay, I'm not dealing with nature anymore. Um. And that, that's why designing from patterns that are that we can already observe in nature and then filling in the details from there is important. Number eight is integrate rather than segregate. So by putting the right things in the right place, relationships develop between those things and they work together to support each other. Mm-hmm. Um, so an example of this would be our current agricultural practices, which are extremely segregated. You have an soybean farm. Mm-hmm, you have mm-hmm. an corn farm and right. it grows one variety of corn, one variety of soybeans. Um, and those are actually not as productive as mixed use agriculture, which, which is kind of a mind boggling thing when you, when you learn about it. Well, and I think also too, you know, we have like, oh, it's like, uh, we do the farming in the middle of the country and then the people live on the edge of the country. And right. so you have to truck. Of course, you have to truck it because you don't use trains. Again, but we want you truck to... it. And but then <laughs> right. when you can't truck it because there's like a pandemic or whatever, then all the food just gets dumped. Yeah, which is cool. And I was great. watching this this morning about this dairy farmer who had who had like had to dump like eight hundred thousand gallons just of milk dump in their milk like into that. like the Mississippi River or something. It's just, like I like, feel yeah, like that, we could figure that out. That's probably not great. I mean, yeah. you know. I don't know the details, but it sounds bad. I feel like maybe um, we should make one of those big vacuum tubes, like for banks, <laughs> but we could just put corn in it. A pneumatic corn tube. <laughs> um, and, and, and like, this is another example of where permaculture can bleed into like things outside of agriculture. For instance, like integrate rather than segregate. Well, that's like, like, I mean, that could go from like having like a garden in your backyard, right? Like a vegetable Well, that or could even garden. go with like, people right like yeah diversity is important diversity of thought diversity of of outlook diver- diversity of your backgrounds like it's funny i was because I, I was watching this this morning there was like an interview of uh the apple company ceo uh timothy cookins mm-hmm. and timothy cookins was talking about how they valued diversity and of course for him it, it's it's a corporate thing it's it's an order it's not just done out of the goodness of their heart, right? Mm-hmm. Um, we want to attribute good values to them, and maybe that's true. But I think what they've probably also found at Apple is that the diversity increases their profitability. It increases their ability to innovate and do yeah, things. Yeah, it's, it's a marketing thing. Because they can right, go, oh, it, look, we're the good company. Yeah, but I think it probably also it probably also changes the way the ideas happen inside their company. Right. Um, and now that might not actually end up being good, but like it is an efficient thing that works. And so you see like integration and not segregation in that instance is, is a positive thing. So like, 
Mm-hmm. Trying to think in that headspace is a good is good. Number nine is use small and slow solutions. Small and slow solutions are easier to maintain than big ones, making better use of local resources and producing more state more sustainable outcomes. I'm sure you've even seen this in like you're an engineer by background. Oh, yeah, like yeah. I'm sure you understand that like a small and slow solution in the long run always ends up better. Yeah, than a uh, massive we, complicated we, one. Yeah, I mean, there's a reason that Facebook's motto is no longer move fast and break things. <laughs> because it turns out if you break enough things, it becomes bad. Yeah, you, you start to build, turn everything into a Rube Goldberg machine that's just like ready to collapse at any moment. Yeah, right. And I, th- yeah. I think we see that, that, that our consumer capitalist culture has basically done the same thing, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and we've gotten away from a lot of like, small and slow solutions that like going back, you know, millennia of indigenous people have known and understood and valued um, that we're now coming back to being like, Oh, <laughs> that kind of worked. Oh, neat. Um, yeah. Number 10, use and value diversity. I think this kind of goes into what we were talking about in number eight, but diversity reduces vulnerability to a variety of threats and takes advantage of the unique nature of the environment in which it resides. So a monoculture, for instance, of one crop is susceptible to uh, just instantaneously being wiped out by like one <laughs> disease vector. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas a diverse uh, system of crops is not as vulnerable. Like you said, crops that are not spread out into some uh quarantined zone of this is the farmland way over here and the pe- all the people who eat off the farmland lived over here mm-hmm. um it's le- it's less susceptible if it's all incorporated um so yeah i think we've kind of covered that but 11 is use edges and value the marginal which is like a really interesting thing the the interface between things is where the most interesting events take place these are often the most valuable diverse and productive elements in the system so like an example of that is if you go along, um, if you go along like a sidewalk and you look at where all the weeds are growing, mm-hmm. they're growing right between the side, sidewalk and the easement. They're not growing in the easement as much usually. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That space right on the middle has something about it <laughs> yeah. that, that, that basically combines the two aspects and 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 optimizes it for for that you you can see that um on the edge of a forest is probably one of the most productive places um because it 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 can take from the elements of both the forest and you know if it's up against the plains uh, of the plains or whatever so mm-hmm. that's something that we think about a lot in permaculture um 12 creatively use and respond to change we can have a positive impact on inevitable change by carefully observing and then intervening at the right time. So um, change often is seen as like, we want to avoid it. We want a static system, but there's no such thing as a static system in the universe. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Static staticness is imposed by humans. um, But it's, it's, it's like putting your finger in the dike, right? Right. Yeah. It's, 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 it, it actually just like, isn't real it's an illusion and and to the extent that you try to impose it you're putting all your time and energy into that instead of using those changes and your creativity 
as as an asset. Um, I think of that as the idea of like someone on a surfboard, like realizing like, oh, I can ride the waves, right? Instead of just right. continually kicking against them, trying to get further out to sea. Oh, I can like use the wave to move horizontally along the end, edge of the shore. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's kind of like gets the behind the parts of like I had everything written down, but but mostly now what I want to talk about is the methods, like. <clears throat> what what are some of the ways that we see this stuff being used? And then um after that we're going to we're going to kind of talk about why it's important and then we're going to like how are these methods used in practice? Like what are examples of them? So some of the methods one of the ones you hear most is food forests. Hmm. Um this is like the concept that comes to people's mind usually when they hear about permaculture because they they saw some crunchy hippie dude talking about how he's building a food forest or they want to turn a, a city park into a food forest. Right. But the idea of a food forest is that, um, you can have a diversity of, of plants and mimic the, the natural ecosystem in order to increase your production. But at the same time, um, you also, are maintaining a perennial system rather than an annual system. So most of our agriculture now it is based off of annual crops, meaning you have to plant them and harvest them annually, right? Every year or every season. So wheat, you, you sow the seeds of the wheat, it sprouts, it grows, you harvest it. And then you do that all over again to obtain another harvest. Whereas uh, something like an apple tree is perennial where you plant it once and then you just harvest every right. season thereafter without having to plant it. Mm-hmm. Um, so to the extent that you can move toward combining annual and perennial and moving towards mostly perennial stuff, um, it increases the amount of what you gain from it to what you have to put into it. Because like, a food forest doesn't take as much maintenance when it is in its most productive stage as annual farming. Yeah, I mean, you would have to do, I mean, you don't have to do any plowing or anything like that, massive land right. maintenance. Yeah. Right. Um, you just, you walk into the forest and you pick what's, what's, what's going on there, you know? Right. Um, and I see, you see this first link I have that's like, what is a, a, a food forest? And there's like a good diagram that kind of shows like all of the seven layers that, that they, that you would have in a food forest. So there's like an overstory of trees, understory trees, there's shrubs, there's herbaceous layer, you know, of, of plants. There's a root layer, you know, you got things like root crops, like yams or carrots or whatever you, you know, would grow mm-hmm. in your area. Then there's even ground cover layers um, where you could have like greens or things like that. And then there's a vine layer that would go up, you know, trees i mean even included in here i i guess on the ground cover layer you could even have like mushrooms right um yeah and what's cool is when you see a food forest once it's been established and it's working you know and this takes a long time it takes a lot of investment but once it's really cooking as it breaks down it resupplies itself and it grows more things so like as the as old limbs and old trees fall down, they decompose 
and that feeds the ground and that turns into mushrooms and that feeds the soil and makes it, um, more, more, uh, uh, what am I looking for? I'm looking for, uh, nutritious for all of the plants that are trying to grow into it. Mm -hmm. Um, another method is water capture and storage. Mostly you see this uh, in things that are called swales, which Mm. are like contoured earthworks. And this is kind of an, a visual thing. A lot of times when I talk to people about swales, I can tell like they're not understanding what I'm telling them. Mm -hmm. Um, but Basically what a swale is, is it's a, imagine you have a flat plane or you have a plane uh, that's like at a slight, um, decline, right? Mm -hmm. If you dropped water on that, the water would run downhill. Mm -hmm. What you want to do is build a berm on contour. Like imagine if you're looking at it topographically. You want to build it along one of those lines so that as the water falls downhill, it runs into this berm Mm. and the berm forces it to stop. And when water stops running horizontally, it can start to infiltrate the soil. Mm. And what you want to do is you want to try to stop and slow the flow of water so that you capture as much of it as possible in the ground rather than it just running off Mm -hmm. into the ocean. Right. Because when it runs off into the ocean, it's carrying tons of nutrients with it mm-hmm. and you can't use it. Right. <laughs> you know, it, we could just build desalinization plants everywhere and just completely run our life off of ocean water. But I think anybody with any ounce of sense can see that that's not mm-hmm. a sustainable way to do things. The best place to keep water is in the ground. Um, right. So yeah, if you click on the link that I have there, there's kind of, there's an illustration of like what a swale is, um, and how it works. And once you see it, it's like, oh, that, that makes sense. Um, kind of intuitive. You can think of it like a smaller form of what you'd see in Asia that they do to form like rice patties, right? Mm, mm-hmm. Where as you're going down the hill, you're, you're making these other, these steps, um, but those are made to make these big patties, whereas a swale system is closer together. Um, another thing to, to stop and capture water and store it is a check dam. And a check dam is like what you would do on a mountain where there are naturally forming ravines and gullies. You build small dams to stop the water for a while so that it can infiltrate rather than just all rushing down. Mm-hmm. Um, and as you do that, you are recharging aquifers, you're recharging springs, um, they, and you're recharging just the plant life on that, on the, the hill hillside there. Um, after water capture and storage, there's things like greenhouses. So carrying, growing all through the year, um, that's like a, a useful tool, right? Um, mm-hmm. and we'll see later some like house designs that use that another big thing is rotational grazing so how we generally uh do animal husbandry today is like so far removed from nature we Mm -hmm. put we put animals into these like confined feed lots where they like stand around in their own crap all day um get diseased and sick and we like pump them full of uh what amounts to like 
Cheetos for cows, right? Like we're just huh. like feeding them corn. We're just like pushing corn into them. Grow yeah. as fast as you can. And and like that's not that relies on fossil fuels, right? That relies on monoculture of just growing a massive amount of cereal grains to feed the cows. Um but rotational grazing is another is another way to obtain uh meat that enriches the land on which you do it and what it is is simply you you take cattle or you take you can do it with chickens you can do it with sheep you can do it with pigs you can do it with turkeys any sort of animal that you're going to have for a food crop and you can you put them on your fields that on grass right because that's like what they're made to eat Mm -hmm. (laughs) that's what they eat in nature is they eat the grass, they eat the grass seeds, the chickens, uh, fowl will eat the bugs and things on the grass. And you use electric fencing that's mobile that you can reconfigure to mm. move them from basically temporary paddocks all across the field to mimic what happens in nature. Because in nature, these herd animals stick in a herd for a reason, because predators, when they attack a herd, that's valuable to the herd animals because it means, well, one may get picked off, but we're not all vulnerable, right? Right. We yeah. can move. If one animal in the herd sees a wolf, it can signal to all the animals to move. And additionally, animals are made to move because they don't eat all the way down to the ground. They naturally eat the stuff that appeals most to them, that is most nutritious. And when they get down to the stuff of the plant that's not great, they move. Mm. Um, but. But that doesn't happen in confined operations. That's healthier because it builds soil. <laughs> right. Um, because to the extent that you eat down some grass, the roots on the bottom of the plant will also die off because the plant does not need that root to sustain itself. It knows that. So that is basically pulling carbon into the soil is, is, is what you're doing. And it builds up the soil. And it makes that that grass more healthy in the future as it grows. So it's like this interesting cycle. Um, we'll talk a little bit more about it. Mm-hmm. It's things like composting systems, uh, urban food production. So like we've talked about, like growing in urban urban situations, using gray water. Um, mm-hmm. You know, there's just an insane amount of water that we that we use in our everyday life that is essentially like wasted right yeah um you get one use out of it (laughs) you wash your hands in the sink and that's all that water was good for and now it goes goes away to some system it goes into a sewer a lot of times it washes into the ocean um or it gets treated at a treatment plant but like you can use gray water for a whole bunch of purposes um Mm -hmm. things like things like aquaculture Growing fish, growing uh, uh, plants that grow in water for for food. Um, renewable energy and heat. So a popular thing in permaculture is something called a rocket stove for heating. Um, have you ever seen those before? No, I haven't. They're pretty cool. So basically, what a rocket stove is, I should have put a picture for you in there. I don't. If you want to just Google rocket stove, um to get an idea a visual idea but basically what the rocket stove is 
is it's a, oh man, they have some real modern designs now. Yeah. Is that you have a bottom feeding chamber to feed the fuel, which is be like small sticks Mm -hmm. into the stove and the fire burns vertically. Mm. Now, what they will do with these, this design is they will build it into the, a concrete or a, a cob, like Adobe or whatever bench or part of your home or part mm-hmm. of the, the living space. And it will use that because it, 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 it creates extreme heat um, mm-hmm. and it's super, super, super efficient. It burns so hot that it burns off like most of the, the particulates that would be pollution. Um, so it's like, it's much cleaner than like another traditional wood burning stove. Um, and it takes a lot less fuel to get that much heat. But basically, you have this rocket fuel stove. You you run it, you know. Um, oh, here's a good picture of kind of like what uh, what they look like. Let's send this your way. But basically, you can just like heat your home for the whole night. Um, Which is one by of just, these stoves. And just storing all the heat that it generates in basically what's a battery, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I'm putting the link in the show notes there. Uh, and so it just emits heat the rest of the night from this solid battery of, you know, concrete or earthen, uh, you know, like Adobe or cob or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, a, that's like a renewable source of, of heating because it's easy to grow sticks. You can have a tree... And if you chop like uh, there's certain kind of trees, like if you chop like a poplar tree down to just, you know, there's like a a foot of trunk on the ground, it's going to shoot up tons of sticks and you harvest those sticks. And that it probably within a season can do this a couple of times. It'll shoot up more sticks like it wants to grow. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And and so it is a renewable source um, of energy and heat. Another one is pressurized air. Um, this is one of those cool, like steampunk kind of like steampunk people's ears mm-hmm. are tingling now. Um, I've read some stuff about this. It's pretty cool. It's pretty interesting. Uh, there's like, we don't really learn about it, but like, I guess Paris was like powered by pressurized air for a while. Hmm. Um, and there's, there's this very simple system that you use falling water to you know you drop it down a certain length and the gravity will pressurize the water and the air you can capture the air that comes off of that in tanks Mm -hmm. and you can use that pressurized air to do all sorts of things like that this is how they used uh mining equipment for like a long time Mm. it was just based off while you're digging a hole, drop water down the hole. The water creates all of this pressure in the air. The difference, you know, um, you capture that air and you send it through hoses to run your your mining equipment. Um, there's apparently like several trolley systems in the United States that were completely run off of pressurized air. Mm, um, mm-hmm. But then, you know, uh, fossil fuel came along and was like, hey, 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 hey. Yeah. We've got another great thing for you. Uh and that displaced it. But like there it 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 takes almost nothing <laughs> to run this pressurized air systems. And then there's like these sort of new 
uh, compressing air systems, Mm. um, that, that they've been talking about that, uh, that are basically like modern versions of this that we could use as basically batteries for renewables like solar and, and wind, because you know, the thing about solar is it's great until the sun goes down. Right. So you need somewhere to store that. And yeah, you know, so they, I can't, how many times I've heard that from, from people who are, well, you know, listen, solar is great, but what, what about when the sun goes down? <laughs> right. Oh, wow. I didn't think about that. You really got yeah. me there. <laughs> <laughs> so basically like you store, you companies are starting to, and it's not, it's, this is in its infancy. So it's not like all the way there yet, but mm-hmm. basically what this does is, is it, it converts the electricity from photovoltaic or for, from uh, wind turbines into this pressurized air. Then you release the pressure of the air, right? You mm-hmm. use that to spin a turbine <laughs> or to, to heat something. You know, there's different ways they use that energy to convert that into electricity for when the other things aren't running. Right. Um, similar things are like using, I mean, really using dams for that, right? Using reservoirs. Mm-hmm. Uh, you release water from the reservoir when the other electricity isn't working to generate um, electricity. Yeah, we um, we have a pumped storage hydro plant here in Michigan actually. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's on it's on the So Michigan is advantageous in that we have a lot of like real tall sand dunes um mm-hmm. at on the coasts. So basically what they did is over on the shores of Lake Michigan they just built a big holding pond behind one of these dunes. Oh, yeah. And then they that's pump cool. the water up and let it back out. That's and that's pretty I mean <laughs> that's 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 a lot more uh efficient use of energy a lot less pollution right than you know just burning gas which yeah. is what most power plants are coal or something like that right right um because what they do you know they like pump it up during the night when there's all this excess energy that's not being used yeah and then during the day during peak time especially in the summer then they'll let the 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 water back out again to create you know um have your uh, you know, your surge power, your additional yeah, power. Yeah. It's pretty cool. It's pretty cool. Um, which is, it doesn't rely on like actual batteries, like that require, you know, exploitation of tribes in Bolivia to, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> to get the lithium and things like that. So, um, yeah, it's pretty cool. Mm-hmm. Um, other, another method is stuff like natural buildings. I kind of talked about this, but like rammed earth, Adobe, something called cob. um, there's a lot of research going on, in fact, about how to do that and 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 how structurally sound that stuff can be. Because we hear that and we're like, uh. right, yeah, <laughs> that sounds that sounds sketchy, but right to us who live studies. in our on our timber buildings, living in like a, a what's it sounds like a mud hut, you know? <laughs> yeah, like. but these there's some pretty cool things. Another like one example of this is something called an earth ship. Mm. Um. And if you want to like really go down a rabbit hole, just like YouTube earth ships and you'll get these tours of these like insane, cool, uh, click on that earth ship global link. You can kind of see these things, but they're basically buildings that are built into, um, a hill or a slope or so Hmm. part of the building is underground and part of the building is facing 
the sun and that part of your home is like a greenhouse. Mm-hmm. And basically the, these, these are passive homes so that they passively use energy to the extent possible. So they'd require like very little input. So for instance, for heating and cooling, they, they don't use, they don't use like much other than so cooling in the summer, they'll run a tube uh, under the ground where the, the air, where the temperature is the constant, it's like 65 degrees. Mm-hmm. And that tube will go up far away from the house uh, above ground and so the air will enter that tube go down into the ground right mm-hmm. and as it passes through underground it becomes 65 degrees and then that air is carried into your home through floor vents and it comes up through the floor and it cools your home and then it exits out the front and the top of your house so you've got this like natural air conditioning that requires literally like no energy. <laughs> mm-hmm. It just happens naturally. Um, and they'll use things like rocket stoves to heat in the winter. But, you know, since they're so massive and they're like tied to the ground, they don't usually require like that much heating either. Mm-hmm. They're just kind of in a constant state. So they're kind of wacky looking. Um, but I think that, I mean, it's pretty cool. And the z- design concepts are really interesting. They use like, the walls will be made of, they'll take, they'll stack tires mm-hmm. on top of each other. And each tire, they will fill with dirt that they use to excavate the hole. And they just compact this dirt by just pounding and pounding and pounding it. So, so it's just, they're basically turning these tires into like mega bricks. Um, and it's, it, since the walls are so thick, it's like, you know, really well at, at keeping them cool and, and warm, keeping the kind of consistent temperature. Mm-hmm. There's a lot that goes into them. You can learn a lot more. Um, so those are like some of the methods, but let's look at like, why is all of this stuff important? Uh, yeah. Like, Hey, hey why do I care? <laughs> why do I care? Listen, I live in the city. I'm not, I don't want to be a farmer. Yeah. <laughs> You know, that, that's what I hear from a lot of people when I, when I'm excited about this stuff and I talk about them and they're like, yeah, that doesn't sound, that is not interesting to me at all, which mm-hmm. is alien to me and hard for me to understand and empathize with, but I accept it. <laughs> and the thing is that the, the system that we've created in this world is unsustainable. And as soon as you accept that truth then you realize that like things are going to have to change. Mm-hmm. They can change for the better or they can change for the worse. Right. <clears throat> Some of the things that we're facing because of the, the system that we've created, the damage that we've done to the earth are things like water loss. We have extreme runoff because we've, we've destroyed the environment. We've turned everything into essentially either literal pavement or <laughs> pavement because it's just dry, hard pan rock. Right. Right. Um, so all of the rainwater that we get is not recharging our aquifers. It's not turning into grass and trees. It's just going into the ocean and it's contributing to killing off the ocean too. Mm-hmm. Um, we're pumping more groundwater than is absorbed back. This, I mean, another thing that comes with this is floods. When we get a rain event, we get these extreme floods. 
because water is not being soaked into the ground where it falls. It's moving horizontally into river systems, which are overflowing their banks because they're, they, they were created through like a slow system over eons to be the size that they are. And they don't have that capacity. Mm-hmm. Um, we're seeing soil loss and loss of soil fertility. So like, Traditional agriculture treats topsoil like a consumable resource to be mined. Right. Um, I, you know, when, when colonists first got to the Americas, they saw these like verdant plains of grass that was like so high that it reached up to like the, their horses saddles. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and they saw just millions of Buffalo roaming and, and, and this idyllic place. And they, they like within a hundred years completely destroyed it. <laughs> mm-hmm. And they just kept moving West as they destroyed it. Right? right. They ran out of topsoil production went way down. They didn't because they didn't understand how this system was being maintained. Um, a fact from this really interesting book I recommend to people called dirt, the erosion of civilizations um it says every second north america's largest river carries another dump trucks load of topsoil to the caribbean each year america's farms shed enough topsoil to fill a pickup truck for every family in the country this is a phenomenal amount of dirt but the united states is not the biggest waster of this critical resource an estimated 24 billion tons of soil are lost annually around the world several tons for each person on the planet. Despite such global losses, soil erodes slowly enough to go largely unnoticed in anyone's lifetime. Hmm. So we're, we're losing tons of topsoil and that's what stuff grows in. Uh, it takes a lot of time to naturally build that topsoil. Um, if you just left things to nature's devices, it would take a long time, a long, long time. Like it takes like 500 years to produce an inch of topsoil. Mm-hmm. Um, an example of like why this is important is you can look at Rome. Um, hmm. So Rome had this flourishing agriculture that fed the city, but soil loss and fertility issues became a major factor in the whatever you call the fall of Rome, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the economics of empire pushed for like more and more slave labor driven High value crops. Does that sound familiar to anybody? Uh, uh, <laughs> so as the Roman Empire, <laughs> as it grew, as the population grew, as their consumer consumerism grew, um, it demanded more and more production of, of stuff like wine, of uh, olive oil and stuff like that. This mm-hmm. led to like worse and worse agricultural practices which led to tremendous erosion. They have like studies where they've seen like roads that were built like at surface level, Mm -hmm. you know, at one period of time in Rome were like several feet above the ground Mm. (laughs) by the fall of Rome. Just, and that was just because these poor agriculture practices of like constantly tilling, uh, not like doing any cover crops, not, not using mixed agriculture, just building, just doing one thing in one area was just like, just depleting all of the topsoil. And then as that happened in Rome and in Italy, Rome relied more and more on expanding their empire. One of the reasons that we don't talk about why Rome was expanding Mm. was 
because they needed land. They needed agriculture from places that they hadn't destroyed. Yeah. So they would go to these areas like, uh, for instance, like in Libya, these places in northern Africa that we think of as deserts were never historically deserts. <laughs> mm-hmm. They were like Mediterranean forested, like verdant, <laughs> really productive farm regions. So they yeah, took them over. Uh, like the cedars of Lebanon. <laughs> right. Things yeah. Like they took them over. They chopped down the trees to use as resources and they turned them into cereal crops. They turned them from a perennial system to an annual system and they did the same thing and they they dis, they desertify like most of northern africa's desertification can be attributed to roman imperial agriculture mm. which is like a mind-blowing thing when you realize it mm. um that's just not like a natural thing that just happened um so uh lost my place here but um that's soil loss there's also the inevitable contraction of globalism mm. like we think that this can go on forever. Like the Romans, we think we can keep exporting our production of our consumable goods indefinitely. But you, you can't. Well, it's, it's worked <laughs> fine in response to the coronavirus <clears throat> pandemic. I don't right. Know. I mean, I can so easily like, get the things I need. Expose the flaws in this, right? Yeah. Yeah, it turns out like, having like a, a, a just-in-time supply chain that depends on everything being made across a vast ocean is maybe not ideal. Yeah. There, it's a, this stuff, permaculture is important because like you want to sequester carbon. You should be putting more carbon into the ground yeah. through plants, keep, through... <clears throat> hashtag keep it in the ground. Keep it in the ground. <laughs> then Put you, it in the ground. Then, then you put into the air because that, as we understand, creates the greenhouse effect and creates all of the problems that we're seeing with climate change. Um, mm-hmm. It's also important, like we said, we want a resilient and diverse food system and we want it to be regenerative. Like the food system should not be like mining. <laughs> yeah, it should. It should be a system because in nature, it just replicates itself. Mm-hmm. It. And and to the extent that we do something that doesn't do that, then why? Like what? Like it doesn't make sense when you think about it. Mm-hmm. Um, so some examples that I want to go through real quick, uh, we see this in practice, is um, a protege of Bill Mollison and David Holmgren, um, Jeff Lawton. Holmgren. Holmgren. Jeff Lawton is a is a very interesting guy. If you Google permaculture stuff on YouTube, you'll find lots of videos of him. He's a irascible um, British guy, but he's lived in Australia forever. And he has um, two really big projects. One of them is Zaytuna Farm, which is like basically like uh, they said, okay, let's take all this permaculture stuff and let's put it into a demonstration site and create like a farm and a place for people to live that uses these principles. And you can, you know, I've, I've left some links for it, but they do really interesting things. And you can see where they took this, this place in Australia during these, these, you know, really tough years. And it's like super abundant. It's, it's just like, it's really crazy. Um, it looks very verdant. It is extremely verdant. And I mean, it is a subtropical place. Like it's, it's not, you yeah. know, it, it should be like that, but um, yeah. Well, it, it turns out it helps if you carefully locate these things. It does help. That's another. Well, we'll get to that. So, um, another good example is uh, Polyface Farms, 
which is run by a gentleman named Joel Salatin, who is who's a very interesting character. And this is in Virginia. And his family came from, they were in um, Venezuela. His dad was like from like, I think like Iowa or somewhere and wanted to like, had some dream of like, you know, building in, in Venezuela. And then, you know, that didn't, they got, they had to leave. Um, Mm. so they brought property in this like super degraded land in Virginia. That was like, this land was the result of the colonial (laughs) just destruction of that early colonial area in the Shenandoah Valley. Um, that was just like turned it into rocks. Mm -hmm. And so his family, like, through using permaculture principles and you know they're not like quote unquote permaculture but they're using like the same kind of principles and obviously as permaculture has become more popular joel salatin has you know adopted that stuff turned it into like these insanely productive grasslands and forests that they use to um raise cows and pigs and uh chickens Mm-hmm. And he he was he's most known for in, inventing a sort of thing that everyone calls a chicken tractor now. <laughs> I don't know if you've seen these. My but my, my chicken tractor. My chicken tractor. But basically, what a chicken tractor is is it's a mobile chicken coop. So mm. just picture a chicken coop um, that is on wheels, basically. Get in, loser. That that you can <laughs> that you can pull with a tractor. So what you do is you put a bunch of chickens in this mobile coop on the grass that sits on the ground mm-hmm. and they stay there for like a day or two eating all the bugs in the sea. And what he does is he moves these behind his cows. So the cows come in, they, they eat the tall grass, they defecate, they, they create all these patties and then he waits and brings the chickens in behind them just in time for when the larva from the flies that they put in the cow patties mm-hmm. would start to, you know, become alive and the chickens eat the larva and control the insect population. It feeds the chickens. They spread the manure. They eat all the bugs and the seeds that the cows left from the grass and the soil. They scratch it up, disturbing it, which makes it grow more abundantly. And they just move this chicken tractor, you know, one length every day mm-hmm. or every two days or whatever. And they do the same kind of things with pigs. They do the same kind of things with their cows where they're constantly moving them. And it builds up this amazing, and he's got like, I mean, I don't have the time to go into it, but look in the links. He does like really cool things. Like uh, he has this system where in the winter time, he brings cows into these stables mm. where they feed on hay, but the hay is connected to like a pulley system in the rafters. And so as the cows, you know, poop, he lifts it up and he takes the cows out and he dumps a bunch of wood chips and, and, and uh, straw and stuff on top of that. So they're not sitting in their own poop. Mm. And just throughout the winter, it's slowly raising up, right. With building up their, their uh, manure, but it's composting because he's adding all of this carbon material. Mm hmm. But what he also does is he throws dried corn into there. Hmm. And so throughout the winter, that corn is sitting inside of that composting manure and carbon and it's fermenting. And then what he does is at the end of winter, when he can put his cows back on pasture, he brings in the pigs Hmm. and the pigs come in and they go hog wild. 
digging mm-hmm. around looking for that fermented corn. And it's good for the pigs because uh, pigs can eat. They, they don't get like the same parasites. Right. Um, as cows and stuff. So like they can rummage through in, in the wild. You'll see like pigs rummaging through manure from, from animals. So um, they go in there, they dig through it, they get all the corn and they're basically composting all of this stuff for him. So he doesn't do any of the work. Mm-hmm. <laughs> all the work he does is put in the straw every layer and lift the feeding, you know, the hay up, uh, you know, over time. Anyhow, it's like these cool systems where it's like, there's no waste, right? What right. would essentially usually be a waste product from the cow that creates pollution. It creates runoff. It stinks. Um, it's not, it's hazardous to your health and it creates like you, it takes a ton of labor. It takes tons of tractors and mm-hmm. uh, fossil fuel to manage is that's all eliminated <laughs> and it's this circular system. So that's like a total permaculture thing, right? Mm-hmm. Um, now, you know, we, we said earlier, like, yeah, choosing your spot is really useful, but Jeff Lawton, the guy who did that, that has that verdant Zaytuna farms, uh, also has a project that he said, okay, we'll show you that this can work in the worst place on earth. Uh, you know, at least, at least, agriculturally speaking which is in, in the desert in jordan mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. so this is like the spot in the world one of the spots that receives like n- like negligible amount of rain a year and it all comes at like in one week right, right? <clears throat> it rains like three times a year there in one week mm-hmm. um so he created this it's called the greening the desert project in jordan you can look at the pictures and you can see like the surrounding areas i mean it's rough it's rocky it's arid, it's desert, but like they have this compound that they've turned into this like really lush place that can keep and store water that builds soil. Um, mm-hmm. and, and it's like a whole little like nonprofit thing that they, they run out of there. It's pretty cool. So, um, you can see those principles in practice like all over and, and a cool place. that's like this on a massive scale is the Albaida project, which is in Saudi Arabia. Um, and <clears throat> Albaida is like the Saudi Arabian government had this area where these nomadic herdsmen had like just depleted all the resources and desertified a like previously, you know, kind of a green area, you know, in Saudi Arabia. Mm-hmm. And what they did is they built like all of these things that we've talked about. They use these methods of building swales, building check dams to catch the water as it rains and it falls off the mountains and infiltrate it. They, they did things like building bat houses so that like bats could help control uh, insect populations, but also like um, they could pollinize like native uh, plants and, and trees and things like that. And basically create like reestablish an ecosystem. Um, And people can see there's like a cool retrospective video where, uh, um, Neil Spackman, uh, who's the guy who, who worked with this <clears throat> kind of like what the result is because they basically have this project and they were using like a certain amount of water to irrigate it, to like get it going. Mm-hmm. But then they had to cut completely cut off the water because of, uh, like financial reasons, like when they didn't expect it and like it all died. And it's amazing to see, like, as soon as it rained, 
how much of it just came leaping back to life. And so it's turned into like a self-sustainable system where they don't have to completely keep putting in all these inputs. And this is, I mean, this is in the desert in Saudi Arabia, like, Mm -hmm. and they're basically, the goal is the Saudi Arabian government wants to turn this into like a whole settlement that they can use as a blueprint for, for other areas. Um, Brad Lancaster is a guy in Tucson who's been doing similar stuff, like on a smaller scale. Um, he started out by, by redesigning, um, a, a public like, uh, area, like a, a square, like a roundabout in a neighborhood. If you go to that page that says, um, evolutions within the Dunbar Springs public commons, Mm -hmm. you can see like a before and after picture of what it was like before his work. You know, you have these roads with just dirt easements up against the houses. Mm-hmm. And then after they're like these really nice trails with, with uh brush and all of the food in there is also like edible. Mm. Like the mesquite trees have pods that you can grind up for flour or you can eat the beans, you know, just like you would like a bean. Um, the cactus have cactus fruit, you know, all, all sorts of things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, his system is like as simple as like cutting the curb so that when it rains, Instead of the water just washing along the road and going to storm drains, it flows into these little, like, you know, shallow ravines that he's built and planted trees in. Mm -hmm. But, you know, simple stuff like that, water harvesting techniques uh, can produce, like, food. I mean, the neighborhood there, they harvest their mesquite flour and they sell it and they make money on it. Like, it's like a, it's like a, you know, productive system there just on their street. you can capture an enormous amount of rainwater. Um, like when you do the calculations about how much rain falls on a flat surface, if you can find a way to store it, it's incredible. Um, <clears throat> there's also a new forest farm, which is run by Mark Shepard. Um, which is really fascinating. I think he's in the Midwest somewhere. Um, but basically what he's trying to do is he's trying to create sort of a perennial farm system that uses like nut and fruit trees. Um, so I think it's chestnuts and walnuts and hazelnuts and apples, Mm -hmm. but then intermixed in those rows are, you know, some annuals and some berries and things like that. Um, and it's a pretty cool system. I, I, you know, like to have anyone go and go and look at that. I think he does like some like turkeys and cows. He runs through there too. Um, but it's really cool because like his thing is he's, he says like, it's like sheer total utter neglect. Like his point is he doesn't want to have to manage that thing at all. Mm-hmm. He's trying to build a food system that doesn't require a bunch of management. Um, and, and so that's pretty cool. So those are some examples of it in practice. But then the question is like, what comes next? And the first thing you're going to hear from people is like, well, yeah, this is great. But like, there's tons of shortcomings that, that you haven't thought about brain genius. Um, (laughs) so like one thing that people bring up all the time is this, this sort of agriculture requires more human labor right now we can create, we can produce an abundance of cereal crops, for instance, with like minimal human labor, because we can use these big giant GPS directed tractors and, Mm -hmm. you know, stuff like that. Um, but my answer is like, yeah, crazy G what if we only had a mass of people without jobs who could, uh, who could do this work and it would be a pretty Mm. rewarding lifestyle. Mm. It would be really enriching to be out there working with your hands in nature, 
uh, close to where you live. Yeah. Hmm. Hmm. <laughs> like you said, like the pandemic has like totally revealed all these cracks in the system and all yeah. of these like issues kind of go, well, you know, um, one of the cool things I didn't, I didn't talk about was like, uh, the civilian conservation Corps actually built like giant swales in the desert in Tucson mm-hmm. as like an experiment to see like, well, what would happen? And they basically just built the swales. I think they planted some native trees in there and then they just left it. And you can go, you know, 60 years later, you can go back and look at it and it hasn't been irrigated. It hasn't been touched, but you go in there and it's like the contrast between the normal desert without that management. And this desert is just incredible. There's like full of trees. There's like litter and wood on the ground. Like, you know, there's like, it's composting. It's mm-hmm. no inputs. You know what I mean? Other than building the earthworks and planting the trees. That's it. Right. Um, so, you know, like we have the human labor. Mm-hmm. We just don't use it. Right. Yeah. <laughs> because we're not willing to pay people. We're not, our society isn't set up for that to be profitable. But like that gets down to the thing of like, once again, capitalism is the problem. Right. Mm-hmm. So people say, well, this doesn't scale. Well, like, is that the problem of permaculture or is that the problem of our economic system? Yeah. <laughs> like, because you can't have a giant million hectare food forest and have that be a way where you can create a bunch of food that you can ship around everywhere in the world. Well, that's kind of the point, right? The, kind, the point is for it to be small scale and local mm-hmm. and distributed and federated. Right. That's the point. And that that's what create that's what makes it more sustainable. Um and also the big thing is like it isn't a capital-based system. Like you don't need to to get a mortgage to pay for a tractor mm-hmm. for a combine for this. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Most of this work, you know, some of the the beginning stuff is an investment, but over time you become free of needing capital and of needing financing, which capital doesn't like. Yeah. Uh, you know, probably the most expensive things are going to be things like, I don't know, like solar panels and any like machine, you know, like if you're building like a, uh, uh, like a, um, what is it? The, the catch dams that, you know, if those have mechanical, yeah. you know, moving parts, things like that. Yeah. And, but, but I mean, on c- certain scale, most of this stuff can be done by hand. Like what's cool right. that Albida, um, uh, system that place in uh, Saudi Arabia they did all of it by hand it's crazy like how much but mm. you know you mm. have a ton of unemployed people <laughs> right who who have nothing else to do you can move rocks it can take time it takes time right but so much of this stuff you can do by hand Um, there's some cool in- new examples in India where they're doing this stuff by hand and it's just basically recharging all of their groundwater, creating all these abundant systems. But it's capital doesn't want you to do it because it divests you from their system, right? Right. Um, so to the extent that capitalism still has like a stranglehold on our world, this kind of stuff is difficult to do. Um, but, you know, it provides an alternative that I think is like really attractive. Mm-hmm. Um, imagine like if your life was, you lived in an area where you, all of your food and stuff was within walking distance. 
that everything was very fresh and local that you didn't have to your AC broke wasn't a, breaking wasn't like the end of the world, you know, mm-hmm. like because your house was a passive house and things worked with nature rather than against nature. Um, we could do this, but it has to happen within a communal model. It's not going to work within capitalism. Right. Don't tell that to the libertarian permaculture people because they mm. don't want to hear it. Don't yeah. tell that to Joel Salatin because he's kind of like that. But uh, <laughs> it, it's the truth when you realize it. But you realize that it, we have the answers. We just have to change our economic and, and social system. Mm-hmm. Um, so where do you go to learn more about this? Um, there's some resources that I've left in the show notes here. Um, but I would, I would adjure you to read Gaia's garden by Toby Hemingway, which is a really good book kind of about permaculture, kind of getting into the philosophy of it, but like also small scale stuff, because this is stuff that you can apply to your house plants. This is stuff that you can apply to your own little garden or Mm -hmm. even to your home. If you're not even growing anything. You can use the permaculture principles in your everyday life. You can use them at work. You can use them, use them everywhere. You can kind of govern your life by those ethics of earth care, people care, fair share. Um, I would also say if you're on Twitter, follow um, this account at build soil. Um, Who's 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 a profile name right now is build soil via 1 million mixed species chestnuts. So they're uh, (laughs) super into the idea of like, putting chestnut trees everywhere because it's a perennial crop that that is super efficient at producing food but like whatever for whatever reason because of how they're processed or because you know it doesn't build into capital we've basically got away from chestnuts in the united states but it's like chestnuts can produce like basically can feed our whole country like it's amazing so but they like share all sorts of links and cool stuff so i definitely would say follow them um check out one community uh global which is a nonprofit that does open source permaculture um they do all sorts of stuff like plans it's cool because it's like this meeting of the open source world with mm-hmm. the permaculture world and they do cool stuff like they'll like invent like machines is the best way I can describe it for like building a cob or like mud Adobe bricks and how you can build like templates to do them. And then they'll open source those. So like instead of creating something to sell, they will open source for you to be able to download the plans and build them for yourself. So what they're trying to do is they're trying to turn permaculture into a self-replicating system that anyone can use and, and, and adopt which is cool because you can point your city, your municipality to a lot of this stuff too. Um, there's stuff that they can take advantage of. There's some other links in there. Um, I, you know, experiment with yourself, just get and get involved. If there's any local permaculture groups in your area, uh, do a search, find out. You might be surprised to learn that there's like a, a small farm that would love to like, have you come over and volunteer and help out. Um, and you can learn a lot that way. Mm-hmm. But I think, I think just to sum it up, it's, it's important that we recognize that, we've, that human beings play a part 
in managing our ecosystem and managing our world and that our role that we've played up until now and especially in recent history has been extractive and not sustainable Mm -hmm. and i think those of us in our generation of millennials and the incoming generation of zoomers and whoever comes after that if anybody does come after that Mm -hmm. uh (laughs) we realize that like like i said we we see the end sign we see that this is not we, we can't keep doing this. And so permaculture, I think, provides some answers for what we can do because it's easy to fall into despair mm-hmm. about all of this stuff about climate change when you don't have any idea of what the alternatives are. And so uh, to the extent that you learn about permaculture and learn about all of these possibilities, I feel like it's really empowering. Um and I think it kind of gives you some hope for the world that we can create, which can be a better world. Like it's possible. Um, and we, we can do it. And I don't, I don't know. You have anything to add to that? I don't know. I'm taking it all in. This is all new to me. So <laughs> it's, it's kind of an information dump. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's exciting. Um, and it's cool to see that it's all there. We just got to use it and we just got to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, for one of the things that I'm looking into doing is I like, I want to try to get my local municipalities to like, allow us to do rain catchment and storage and gray mm-hmm. water usage mm-hmm. because, well, we are in the desert. <laughs> we don't get a lot of rain. Right. And to the extent that we use that rainwater efficiently, um, it will only help. We don't have to drain our aquifers to the extent that we're doing. So, um, and I would like my water bill to go down quite. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, with that, just, just remember that there's always something to learn. Like our good friend, Huel Hauser, that, that there's, there's always opportunity, uh, to find these solutions and apply them to our lives. So get out there. I have no idea what I'm doing. I was not prepared for this I'm trying and I'm learning Thank you for your patience There's so many mistakes I have already made But I'm working to be better day by day And I think I'm gonna make it But for now I'll say I have no idea 